Hey, I'm Bear McCreary here at Film Music Media All Access, and we're going to talk about some cool music nerd stuff. Uh, Bear, thanks so much for uh, for sitting to, uh, chatting today. So great to be here. At yeah, your studio. of course, Kaya. This is going to be fun. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we did an interview a long time ago. It's been a while. So I'm yeah. so honored to have you on on All Access right now. Great, thanks. Um, but to to start, I would love to kind of know, maybe revisit kind of your path to becoming a composer. Sure. What's your background? What talk about like the first time you remember music kind of like sparking something in you? Um, that would be uh, when I was five, um, maybe six. Um, I definitely uh, saw a lot of movies when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. um, I, movies that a kid shouldn't see. My mom just took me to whatever. <laughs> she took me to see like The Natural and Gandhi and um, uh, Empire Strikes Back, you know, when I'm like two. <laughs> um, the, and, and so these are, these are sort of like these sweeping cinematic vistas and yeah. these sweeping cinematic scores are sort of boring into my brain. Um, but it was really Back to the Future, Alan Silvestri, that, oh, yeah, yeah. uh, was the first time I, I really realized what was going on in my brain. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I made my mom take me a second time and I took my Fisher Price cassette deck that I <laughs> was using to like make little radio shows and I held it up during the entire film so that I could record. Wow. I didn't want to hear all the dialogue and stuff. I just wanted to hear that music. Yeah. Um, and then I listened to that tape uh, for a while until I finally found out that there were these things called soundtracks. <laughs> you could listen to the music without having to tape record it yourself. Yeah. And it was all downhill from there. <laughs> that was pretty much the end of it. I had something similar where um, my parents took me to see Jurassic Park when I was six. And I had one of those movie picture books that had like kind of for kids like, oh, this this scene and the T-Rex comes in the car. And I just sat with the in the theater making sure that the pictures matched up with the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's awesome. That's so, awesome. <laughs> so just recently uh, we had you. Uh, it's it's in the process of being printed now my, uh, for the Score magazine, talking about your mentorship with Elmer and, and right, everything. Right, right, cool. So I want to talk about that. I think it's importance of like how your career got started and how Elmer influenced that and what he meant to you. Yeah, you know, I was very fortunate to know Elmer mm -hmm. um, Bernstein personally. Uh, he was a huge hero of mine, uh, one of the the handful of composers that I would, uh, as a kid, just go out and see a movie if yeah. he was doing it. Um, and uh, and so I got to know him through a chance meeting uh, through the local Rotary Club in Bellingham, Washington. <laughs> where I was uh, a junior in high school, and I think I was awarded uh, you know, student of the month from the Rotary Club. Right. So I come in and talk to all these, I don't talk, I just come in for like their luncheon yeah. on a school day, and it's like, this is Bear McCreary, he wants to study film music and be a film composer. And uh, this is just sort of like an award that the Rotary Club gives out to like go on your resume, because I had a mm -hmm. high GPA, it's, it's, you know, yeah, effectively meaningless. <laughs> and then, um, uh, this guy pulls me aside. His name was Joe Coons, and he says, "Hey, I've got a friend who uh, who works in the film music industry. Maybe you'd be interested in in meeting him." And I was like, "Sure, man." <laughs> like, I was already so bored. I was like, "Can I just go back to school, please?" <laughs> and he goes, "Have you heard of Elmer Bernstein?" And my jaw hits the floor. Like, of course I've heard of Elmer Bernstein. Oh my god. Yeah. Um, turns out that. Um, Elmer was an avid sailor, kept a boat in my hometown, wow. which was the last city on the uh, western coast of the United States. 
uh, before he got, we were right, right up near the Canadian border. And Elmer would every summer take his boat from my town of Bellingham mm -hmm. and sail up to Alaska and back. That was like their wow. summer getaway. So this guy at the Joe at the Rotary Club ran the like boat association and he knew Elmer. Oh my God. And uh, <laughs> so through, through Joe, I sent in a tape of some of my music, uh, which he listened to. And uh, wow. I would later find out he, he wouldn't listen to the countless demo submissions. Yeah. I mean, later I would work at his office. I mean, it's just sort them. of like, yeah. add him to the pile. Like, he's not going to listen to him. Yeah. But he listened to mine because it came from Joe. And uh, then I met him a few months later when he came out uh, toward the end of that school year uh, to go on his boat. And uh, and he asked me a bunch of questions. He, he, he was really struck by the personality in my mm. music. That's the word I remember the most. Uh, it has a lot of personality. And then he says, um, well, have you... Have you studied theory? No. Conducting? No. <laughs> Counterpoint? Music history? Orchestration? <laughs> Film? Like nothing. <laughs> no, I've just I'm just making music on my little keyboard. Yeah. And with my um, computer sequencer, I'm just making music constantly. Um, and Elmer said what I had already felt because guys like Elmer were my heroes. For lack of better terminology, you got to be this tall to get on the ride. Right. You got to know orchestration, theory, counterpoint, conducting. That's like the minimum. Yeah. From there, you learn the other things. Right. So he goes, well, you know, you should come to USC and learn all those things, which right. is exactly what I did. Um, of course, the funny thing is he was wrong, right? Mm -hmm. This is 1996. And maybe even unbeknownst to Elmer, the 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 the... the Tectonic plates of the industry are moving. Yeah. At this time, uh, Hans Zimmer had won an Oscar. Yeah, Danny Elfman was still the punching bag of the industry because yeah. he was very forthcoming in saying he didn't read music. Right. Which was like an outrage yeah. at the time. Um, technology was still sort of like seeping in, but it was about to change everything. Mm -hmm. For people of my generation, do you need to know conducting, orchestration, counterpoint, music theory, music history? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. You absolutely do not need to know those things. Yeah. Um, you just need to have a way of making music, right. a way that's personal and works for you. If it's electronic, that's great. If it's world music, that's great. You, the, the, the industry was sort of opening up, or it was about to open up in a really big way and embrace um, technology. But I mean, that's what made me sort of a historical anomaly because my heroes were Elmer Bernstein, Jerry Goldsmith, John Williams, and that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. But I was exactly the age, I was just young enough that I started writing music. I began on a computer. Yeah. Um, my family got a computer for the first time when I was 12. And I'd already been sequencing on a little like Casio. So the idea that a composer is like, supposed to write it down like pff, never mm. I've written by hand one piece of music in my life I'm not like nostalgic <laughs> about it right so that kind of puts me in a unique spot because knowing Elmer worshiping his way of doing things I learned all those skill sets I did go to USC and I I got a I didn't get a degree in film music I got a degree in classical composition yeah that's what I studied there um, at the same time, I still recorded music on my own, got into digital recording, got into sequencing, played in rock bands, played in heavy metal bands, played in pop bands, did all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and it ended up putting me in a place in the industry where I, I'm, I'm fairly comfortable 
in both worlds now. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So I'm I'm very grateful for his influence and also just the sort of influence of the technology around me that yeah, um, yeah. that allowed me to sort of um, grow into what I think is obviously the modern way of scoring films, which is not Elmer's way. Absolutely, but it's also I think it, you're lucky for doing that too, because or having that because uh, it makes you stand out. I think from the crowd a little bit. Um, Maybe. Um, I, I, I don't think, know. I think may, maybe. I mean, it's definitely an anomaly when yeah. people go, you conduct your own stuff. Yeah, because it like, is strange. There's very few composers who do that. That, I, I, that is part of how I express myself musically. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that is interesting. And I, and, I, and I think if I was born four years earlier or four years later, it, I would, it would be entirely different. different. It yeah. would be really different. Um, so being born exactly when I when I was and having interest that I did really um, allowed me to um, to sort of thrive in in what is a, an entirely different um, music media landscape than existed twenty years ago, oh, yeah. thirty years ago. I was uh, in film school. I was the last class to go through and you actually use film. And right. the next year, they switched to digital, and they were using mini-DV sure. and stuff like that. I and took a degree, a, a, a minor in recording arts at USC, and I graduated because of my fifth year. I graduated in 2001? I don't even remember. Whatever. Point is, I got a minor in recording arts. Yeah. In 2001, right. Pro Tools was optional. It was like an optional class. Keep in mind, the entire USC studio recording major Yeah collapsed under its own weight a few years later doesn't even exist anymore wow because you know we were like aligning tape heads and <laughs> and stuff and i was like this is cool like kind of but i will literally never do this yeah <laughs> and the pro tools class is optional meaning like you could get a degree in recording from usc in 2001 and not learn pro tools right. <laughs> you know what i mean like think about that yeah um Anyway, it's yeah. an interesting time. It, it was is. it was it's an interesting sure. time, you know. And, and technology continues to change the the business on a on a on a daily basis almost. Yeah. But that fundamental shift from analog to digital that took place from roughly the early '80s to the late '90s. Yeah. That I don't know that there will be another cataclysmic change in the way media music is produced mm -hmm. like that again. I, 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 it's hard to imagine something yeah, like that. Yeah, because is constantly changing, but yeah, that shift was so dramatic, and now it's like we're at this level, like I'm recording this now on a camera. I remember my friend saying, like, yeah. oh, yeah, DSLRs are going to change everything. I'm like, ah, oh, what, what, what is that? There? What are you talking about? Yeah. A little card? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not yeah. to log my what? footage anymore? It's crazy. <laughs> like, it's crazy. But, it, but yeah, it's, it's, um, it's amazing. Um, so you were talking about kind of like, yeah, you are talking about being kind of classically trained, but also you're in this new world of technology. When you were early in your career, did you kind of have, uh, were you self-aware of trying to find your own sound? Like, what am I going to sound like as a composer? Or is that too, like, too much of an ego thing to be thinking about? Or it, That's an interesting question. I definitely didn't think about it, yeah. even though I think I was doing it. Yeah, because Elmer mentioned you had personality in the music. And I think, yeah, you know. and, I, and I think some of that, to a degree, is, like, hardwired in the things that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. And the way I always approached music, even as a, especially as a teenager, I would always just try to do different things. That, that's what's weird. Is like my goal has actually been to be a chameleon. Yeah. I when I first like when Tombstone came out, I was like, "Wow, I'm gonna do western. I'm gonna write a western theme." Like I'd never <laughs> seen a western. It blew my mind. Yeah. I started doing horror music. I did uh, adventure music. I would just do these different things. And even today, like I just had four movies come out in completely different genres. Yeah. Like, like wildly different. 
I don't think of them as like, there's like a voice in them. I, I don't know, but it, I think it's impossible for me not to have whatever voice that I have. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will say that like, when I was in, when I was in college, especially doing student films, mm -hmm. um, and then again when I, when I started Battlestar Galactica, sort of the early days of my career, I, I was always so excited to be doing something collaborative, yeah. creative. I, I, I never really took the time to like look at what other people are doing. And to a degree, I still don't. Yeah. Um, so you know, it wasn't like when Battlestar came up. It's like, oh, cool! I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go watch Stargate and uh, Star Trek um, Enterprise. I got. I gotta go see what those guys are doing and get a lay of the land. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it. I was actively not doing that. Instead, it's like, what's here? Oh, like Japanese taiko drums. I'm. I'm gonna. That's a cool idea. I'm gonna go research that for a year. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And 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 that's where I think that inclination to just like find some weird thing that's inspiring in a project and then like dive into it deeply yeah. that might be the thing that gives my music if, if it has a unifying personality that might be what it is right. do you know what i mean is that, that i everything about it has something that i spend a lot of time um trying to figure out yeah like a puzzle i'm trying to piece together yeah yeah and and um and and ultimately that's helped me because it i think it has helped my music um stand out no, to to sure. a degree, you and know what I mean. Yeah, and so when yeah. I, um, you know, when I see younger composers that are like, "Oh, here's my like Hans Zimmer track, and here's my Danny Elfman track, and here's my," you know, it's like those are useful skills, and mm -hmm. I, I have those skills too. Yeah. But when that's all that it is, like that's not filmmakers don't want that. Yeah. You know what I mean? They want a voice. They want exactly. Yeah. They they're that, hiring you for you, not for you to do somebody else. Yeah. Exactly, and one day they might go like, "Look, I love this Danny Elfman track. You have to cop it." Yeah, temp it. Once you <laughs> have the job, you have to have that skill. Yeah, but that skill is 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 down the list of of, of things that I think filmmakers look for in um, in composers for sure. But again, I have the the advantage of sort of knowing that now. This really was like I was so naive. Oh yeah, I was of just doing what I enjoyed doing, and I think that. That, that's what sort of Elmer. When I look back, because I, I just think like, why did why did Elmer take me under his wing? Like, what did he hear in my yeah. music? And and I just think that when I look back at myself, it's like I was definitely passionate, like extremely passionate, mm. and my output was high, and I wanted to do all these different things, and um, I sort of stumbled into the job part of it. I didn't yeah, spend yeah. any time thinking about how, do, how does one get into the business. Right. Like I literally never asked that. <laughs> it was just like, what's a cool thing to work on? I'm working on cool stuff. Like, oh my God, Elmer, like show me cool stuff. Like, <laughs> so, and, and, and it was really, I remember like somewhere around the, halfway through the first season of Battlestar, I realized, uh, oh, people are paying me now. <laughs> like nothing is different. I'm yeah. still doing what I was doing on student films and right. indie projects. It's like, oh, wait, this is like a job now. <laughs> That's cool. Like, when did that happen? You know what I mean? Like, it yeah. it snuck up on me. So, so like, when you started Battlestar, did you? It, it seems like you're really just into it and immersed. It. Did you have like jitters about it? Did you like? Were you like, oh my god, this is my first show. This is my first time that audiences might listen to me. Like, I, I was definitely aware of that. Yeah, I, 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 I was definitely aware of um, having an opportunity to to do something. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I had jitters. It was more like I was just doing what I'd been doing 
for years, yeah. meaning I'd already built up a team that just on student films. I mean, at, at USC, when I was doing student films, they had orchestras. Oh. I was conducting. I, they had live players. Um, the budget was $200 for pizza. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was just like, I would just hustle and get people to come out. So suddenly it's like, oh, oh there's like a little budget here. This is awesome. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, uh, so I was aware, um, and I definitely had the mentality like, dude, you get to do one episode of Battlestar Galactica? Wow, that's cool. <laughs> like, that'll be something, you know, when I'm an assistant again next year, that'll be something fun to be like, hey, I did one episode. <laughs> uh, which was sort of all it was. It was like yeah. they... Um, were they they were looking for somebody to uh, to take over, and um, I did one episode that happened to be the first episode of season one. It's an episode called Thirty Three, which is a really good episode, and and um, and I you know it's a good score. I feel like I stuck the landing on that one. And at the playback, the producers go, Would you "Come in tomorrow. Let's let's take a look at the next episode." And I was like, <laughs> "Okay, whoa! I get to do two episodes of Battlestar Galactica." <laughs> You know, basically, I felt like that for the next seventy hours of, yeah. of narrative that, oh that I goodness. scored. You know, yeah. Um, until it gradually kind of settled in. It wasn't fully until the final season that I was like, "Wow, I think I'm like, I'm like the composer of this show." <laughs> wow, you know what I mean? Like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm like, that might be it. Like, people might hire me on other stuff. <laughs> so I mean, yeah, you got your start in TV, which uh, a lot of composers say it's a very grueling schedule. It's, it's hard work. Uh, yeah. Uh, and you kind of uh, kind of went through a lot of TV series early on in your career. Um, do you think that was a? Did you want to stick with TV? I know you're kind of doing more films now, but was that always kind of like let me grind through TV, or did you have an appeal to TV or anything like that? Did it well, it's to you? interesting. Um, to be to be perfectly honest, I had no desire to do TV whatsoever. Mm. It's not like when I was a kid, I watched Magnum PI and went like, oh my god, I want to write the underscore <laughs> to episode seven twelve. Oh my god. This is the this is my life's calling. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, right. and I loved like the A team and shit, but yeah. it's still like <laughs> that theme is cool. But it's like I don't care about the underscore to the A team. Right. I right. don't. The, the um, theme's always yeah. That's what television was. Mm -hmm. you, you know what I mean? There was only one show that ever caught my my ear, uh, Batman the animated series, mm. and I was like, this person Shirley Walker, who is this? Yeah, I was like, and in fact, when I started Battlestar, I was like. I didn't even need to think about how to do this. And it was like, what would Shirley Walker do? That's where I wow. went. Um, however, uh, again, I'm biased, man. I feel like I just got to put the card on the table. Like, yeah. obviously, I'm biased. We exist in a television and long-form storytelling landscape today. For sure. It's very different than 20 years ago. Absolutely, yeah. Um, to say the least. And yeah. I think if, if a television critic or journalist were to say pick five shows that really cracked the door open for what we have today to exist they would probably be sopranos oz lost west wing battlestar galactica yeah i really think it's it's that important or it was that important absolutely and when i saw the miniseries i was like Oh, this is going to change the world. Mm -hmm. And then I saw the first episode, and I was like, "This is just beyond anything that yeah. that uh, other shows that I love." I was a fan of Farscape and 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 uh, Stargate and Star. I loved uh, um, 
Next Generation and Deep Space Nine. But I was like, this is a whole other thing. Yeah, yeah. And sure enough, like, my instincts were correct. I mean, it's like this show was recognized by the United Nations. It became a thing that sort of seeped into pop culture and, like, without, I think, getting enough credit, cracked the door open so that you know, eventually now every single network and streaming channel that exists, and there's a lot of them, wants a gritty, serialized genre story. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's a long-winded way of saying, of course I didn't want to do TV because TV wasn't TV. Right. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. So I, I, I planted my roots on what would become, I think, one of the defining shows of this new version of the medium. Yeah. Um, and I was thrilled to be there. Absolutely. And from there... Uh, Terminator the Sarah Connor Chronicles yeah, yeah. Um, was way ahead of its time. I mean, can you imagine if that were on Hulu now? Oh, my God, yeah. Oh, my God, we'd be on season 10. Um, <laughs> I know you only last, it was only two seasons? Two seasons, season, yeah. Uh, and a killer cliffhanger. Oh, my God, what a great show. What a yeah. great show. Um, and uh, uh, Walking Dead, obviously, Outlander, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I mean, I've, I've, yeah. I've, I've, I've had a lot of great experience in television. Um, but with that said, you know, my, my love began with movies. And I always um, was sort of drawn to the higher stakes that the shorter form creates. I mean, it's just, sure. it's higher pressure. Um, every scene is sort of the only one of its type. Yeah. I mean, when you're doing a TV show, you've got your season premieres, you're, you've got your series finales. Those, those are really high stakes, don't get me wrong. For sure. But it's like in, you know, episode 407 has a climactic scene. There's a climactic scene in 406. There's a climactic yeah. scene. You, you just know it. Yeah. You just kind of know, like, cool man, I'm going to hit this beat and I'm going to move on. Yeah. On a film, every single beat is the only one. Yeah. There's only one climax. There's only one scene where the boy loses the girl. There's only one scene where the comedic relief does. It's like, so everything has to be perfect. Yeah. Dialed into absolute perfection. And I love that, like... I'm like a definitely a perfectionist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bordering on OCD, so right. it's like let's let's really dial this in yeah. and make this like perfect. That's fun for me, you know. Yeah. And I and part of the problem is I approach TV that way as well. So <laughs> so it can be a little maddening, but but yeah, I mean I um I I enjoy all these mediums, and really what I'm drawn to is the story. Mm -hmm. Um, but it 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 is interesting that when I started in television. Uh, it absolutely wasn't the plan at all. Like, yeah, yeah. If you'd asked me when I was 20, it's like, you, what are you going to score? I, I, like, I would have, even at 20, I would have been like, I want to do films. Uh, I want to do like operas. I want to do like Broadway show. I want to do video games. Um, I want to do live concerts, like t TV. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I, it would have taken a while for me to get there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there you go. Funny how things work out. For sure. Yeah, you're talking about those kind of core shows that kind of transform the TV landscape. And you're, I think you were working on one still that did it. I mean, Walking Dead was, I think, such a you know, big thing when it came out. And it's, yeah. we're, how many seasons now? Ten? Ten, we're going ten to seasons. Ten. So you were, I mean, you're probably also one of the few original who's stayed there from the beginning and has been there through this entire journey. Um, rewinding back before the drama and everything with Darabont, what was it like working with Frank on those, like, that first season and kind of building that first foundation for the series. It, working on The Walking Dead was an awesome experience. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I came to it with a huge respect for Frank Darabont's body of work. Yeah. Um, starting with that script for The Blob, man. I mean, that was like, I love that movie. Uh, and Shawshank, of course, obviously. Yeah, yeah. It was like, this guy's a genius. 
Um, and uh, like with Battlestar Galactica, when I saw the rough cut, and I, I'd been working on it before Frank even shot it. I mean, he hired me very early, so I'd mm -hmm. had a lot of chance to think about it. And I saw the rough cut of his 90-minute uh, uh, premiere, and uh, I was like, this is one of those things. Yeah. I mean, I, I felt it when I saw the Battlestar Galactica miniseries. I mean, it just, it just kicks you in the teeth, like mm -hmm. this is significant. Um, that happens rarely, and and uh, and you know I was right. Obviously, it resonated with a lot of people. There was something about it. Um, it was fantastic. You know, Frank's very hands-on. He's got a lot of really clear ideas. I think the thing that I enjoyed the most that he and I were immediately on the same page about was that there would be almost no music at all. Yeah, it wasn't um, heavy on the music. There was twenty-one minutes of score in a ninety-minute episode. Wow. Yeah. Um, so uh, that was. Extreme, yeah. you know, uh, and most of it was like very, very light. Um, but it was interesting, you know, like certain things, it, you know, he, we really worked a lot to dial in, and and other things just sort of like fell into place almost immediately. Notably, yeah. the main title, which sort of like V one has been on the air for ten years. I mean, so that I, was a that was easy it. to crack, just boom like that. Yeah, it was it was weird because <laughs> like we've been fine-tuning everything. And the idea came to me like super fast. I was actually scoring the scene at the end of the episode under the tank. I, I didn't have an idea for the theme. I wow. was actually blanking for like a week. Then I got to the scene under the tank when he's crawling away from the walkers. Um, it's the closest thing to an action scene in the entire pilot. Mm -hmm. First episode, I should say. And, uh, and I'm just looking at it and I go, oh, I pull up some trim strings. Da -na 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 oh my God, I got the main title. Do you know what I mean? And I, it was like, an hour later, I like sent it to Frank, and I was like, "What do you think?" And he was like, "It's awesome." Sent it to Gail Ann Hurd, sent it to AMC. I mean, everybody was just like, "It was it was weird. It was just yeah. one of those weird things where like, <laughs> you know." And 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 um, another thing that's interesting about it, right, is that uh, I had the idea because of the way Frank ended that teaser, yeah. where Rick shoots the little girl zombie, mm -hmm. Walker, I should say. <laughs> uh, and I was like, what if the main title like starts before the main title? That's cool. Yeah, and it'll be like, it'll be like a special, like, you know, only this episode. Um, and, uh, but I mean, like, we've literally done that or some variation of that, like, close to a hundred times. Oh, yeah. You hear that it starts before the cuts yeah, to it's, I mean, no. And in fact, and then you a, hear the boom. Like, I know. Yeah. It's, and it's actually, and it's actually cool. Like, it makes you lean in more. Yeah. I 100%. thought it would be like you know the sequence is about to end, so mm. it kills suspense, but I think it's the other way around. Because no, sure. you know the filmmakers always put something killer right at the end. Yeah. When you go, oh shit, there's only 10 seconds left. Yeah. Because you know <laughs> it's coming. Uh, and it, I mean, I, I've even you know like blatantly borrowed that trick in, in other shows, because it's just like, this is too awesome. Yeah, you know great. what I mean? Um, but that was sort of a fun accident you know, that, that, that Frank and I discovered. Yeah. So he was really cool. Um, and... Uh, you know, we've gone through a number of showrunners, each of whom has brought their own voice, yeah. each of whom easily could have, maybe even should have, brought in their own composer. I've been on both sides of that situation. For sure, yeah. New showrunner usually means new team. And so I'm grateful uh, to Glenn Mazzara and uh, and then Scott Gimple for, like, coming in with a new yeah. vision and letting me hang, you know? Yeah. And and my score has evolved a lot over over 10 years. Absolutely. It's, it's not like, uh, it has, it has it's not like it's like friends or something where it's like <laughs> the same thing. It's, 
It is, I have reinvented it several times over. And now Angela Kang uh, in season nine and uh, 10 has let me do the same thing. So I'm, yeah. I'm always grateful for that. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I mean, uh, getting to, I guess, refresh it and redesign it probably helped with sustaining it for 10 years, right? For I sure. mean, yeah, because if you had to do the same thing for 10 years, you'd probably be like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I, I know the guys that like do those cop shows that go for 10 years. Oh, it's yeah. like, there are reasons to do that that maybe aren't creative. <laughs> Right. But that to me is like, I, 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 man, it's just not the way I want to spend my time. You, you know what I mean? So I'm, I love that I, I, uh, that, that I've had the chance to, to do that. Right. Absolutely. Um, another show that I really loved that you did was Da Vinci's Demons. Um, oh, thank you, man. Which is, I think, one of my favorite scores of yours. I mean, those are great scores. Thanks, man. Great it's series. one of my favorite scores I've ever. Done. Yeah. So working um, uh, with David S. Goyer. Yeah. Uh, talk about because it's it's such an interesting concept too. And how did you how did you find this, the sound for that? Well, it was funny because I spent the first week trying to write the theme, and I wanted to write something that reflected something of not only the character, like you would do on any show, yeah. but like the historical figure. This yeah. is Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah. I mean, like, I actually felt more pressure writing a theme for Leonardo da Vinci than writing music for Godzilla, or Chucky, or Battlestar, or Terminator. It's like, this is one of the like heralded geniuses of mankind. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I've got to write something that yeah. tips the hat to this guy. Uh, and he uh, famously encoded his ideas. He would write forwards and backwards. Mm -hmm. He had this backwards writing. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, that's cool. Maybe I'll just, maybe I'll write a theme that's like forwards and backwards. I decided to write a theme that is a palindrome. So that's like a really cool intellectual idea. Yeah. It also needs to be like romantic and lyrical and adventurous and ominous and all the things the show needed. But I mean, I, I did it. If you reverse the recording of the main title of Da Vinci's Demons, it sounds the same. The whole the whole thing. Wow. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta say, like, like, uh, it's like I won an Emmy for that main title, and I gotta say, like, that's probably why. Yeah. Because it's like. I, every time I've said that to somebody, they're like, no way. And it's like, no, really. And when I played it for David Goyer, I didn't tell him this. Because I was like, that is such a distracting thing to know. Right. That I was just like, here's the theme. Just let him take it in, yeah. And he was like, well, that's cool. And we talked about it. And then and when I was done, I was like, so it's a palindrome. You can turn it backwards, and it's the same, just like Da Vinci's writings. And he was like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was like, it was funny. Like, they, you know, they invited me to, like, all the press junkets in, like, Italy and stuff. Like, you talk about the, that theme. That's cool, man. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, to, to me, Da Vinci's Demons, is, it's more than just the, the, the intellectual nature of it. It, it. it was such an unleashing of everything I love about music. Yeah. It was emotional. There was, there was love themes and adventure. I got to dive into the past for the first time, and I wrote for Renaissance instruments, and I pulled in Renaissance themes. Um, and uh, and tell part of this you know this 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 big epic story, um, and, and in many ways that set the the table for other historical dramas I got to do for stars, mm. um, notably uh, Outlander and uh, Black Sails. Yeah, I'd love to talk about those two. Um, two so it's shows, you know yeah. it was it, but Da Vinci's Demons was really the first time when it's like oh my god I'm not in the post apocalyptic future, which yeah. in many ways like many of the shows that I was doing at that time were set in that kind of world. Yeah. So that was that was that was awesome. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Black Sails, which and again I loved your music for Black Sails because it's uh ever since Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, you say pirates, all you hear people go da da dun dun da da dun dun. Yeah. So, 
how did you tackle finding a pirate sound? I mean, you, you relied on your beloved hurdy-gurdy. Yeah. And, uh, well, what, I mean, what is the pirate sound? What is a pirate score, I guess? The first thing we did was uh, throw out the notion of what pirate music is, when, which goes back to Eric Korngold. Oh, yeah. That's, that's yeah. why it works for Hans and mm-hmm. team to do it, because it's like, We've all known. I mean, they did it in Goonies too. It's yep. like it's yeah. like every twenty years we're reminded. Same with Star Wars. Ultimately, oh, I mean, yeah. it's like the the that swashbuckling adventure music of the nineteen thirties and forties is still in our pop culture DNA. Yeah, yeah. So throwing that out, what else, What do you do if you don't do that? Um, well, I basically just did what I did on Da Vinci's Demons, where I go, let's let's go back to the time period. What was happening in music at that time? Mm. And yes, there was a sort of pirate work song that kind of yo ho ho thing does have a historical accuracy to it. Sea shanty kind of sea shanties, exactly. Um, But I was like, well, what if we look also at the instrumentation? Mm -hmm. And the idea that I came up with was, I want to score Black Sails with instruments that not only existed in 1715, but could be pulled onto the boat. (laughs) You could take with you. Yeah. Things they would know. They wouldn't know a French horn. They would know a hurdy-gurdy. They would know... I used a string quartet, because it's like, ah, maybe somebody has a cello. Yeah. That was as cinematic as I got. Right. Hurdy-gurdy, fiddle, mandolin. Um, the whole percussion section was uh, a duo called uh, a Bowron and Bones. A Bowron, a big Irish frame drum. And Bones, literally animal bones, that create that clickety-clack mm. um, sound that sort of permeated the entire score. Wow. Um, and, uh, and, and, and voices. So... And I fudged it a little on the main title because I was like, this is so metal. Like, I'm going to bring in Mike Keneally on electric guitar, bring in some uh, drum kit, and just like, we're going to make it a little bigger yeah, yeah. for like the raddest main title I've ever written, dude. It's so fun. But other than that, I mean, like, you know, other than that, it, it, it's the weirdest score I've ever written. I mean, and in many ways, what I love about it is that it you cannot tempt that into other movies. Like when I work on something and people are like, oh, what other scores have you done? Send us over some tracks to temp with. It's like, this is useless for you. Yeah, it only it's like, works for that. It only works for Black Sails. Yeah. And in a way, like, in a way, like, I think Black Sails is criminally underrated as a show. Sure. And even though I've done things that have gotten more attention and maybe even things that are like objectively like more intricate music, I kind of wonder if it's like, like when I'm on my deathbed and it's like, what is the coolest thing I ever did? Like, am I ever going to top black sales? That might be it, man. Really? It might literally be all downhill from here, dude. It's, <laughs> I'm so proud of that, um, of that show and that yeah, music. Yeah, it's so, awesome. Because it just has such a personality. Um, I think the closest I've ever come to it um, might actually be Child's Play this year. Yeah. Which had a similarly like so distinct and personal and weird and non-orchestral. Yeah. I guess that's what I'm saying is like those times when I can find a way to score something in a non-orchestral language are super rewarding for me. Yeah. Because I I I, I grew up listening to orchestral music. I'm I'm very quick at it. I have a lot of skills in it. So when you take that away from me and it's like, oh my God, what am I gonna do? Mm-hmm. Then I find something cool. It it, it can be very rewarding. Yeah, you know. Well, we can dovetail into Child's Play because I, it, it does piggyback on that of like using unique instrumentation stuff. That and I'm I'm, spot, I'm spotting this thing here. Is that was that featured? That is one of them. Yeah, that's let me one try of the, swing this camera. Swing that over. That's one of the toy pianos. Oh, oh look at that. Yeah, there, <laughs> so. there it is. <laughs> um, uh, 
Yeah, indeed. So, indeed. You, so for Child's Play, you... One of, I think, a dozen toy pianos. Was it all children's or were you mixing it in with uh, other stuff? I mean, do you layer it in there? How did you um, kind of build it that? Was, it was 95% of the score was all me yeah. layering what would amount to, like, the amount of information that would be in an orchestral score. Yeah. Um, it was mostly toys, uh, toy pianos, toy guitars. Um, I used hurdy-gurdies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the anything I could sort of hold in my hand. I used um, automatones, which are arguably toys. Um, and then oddly, um, perhaps I thought the toy piano would be the most distinct sound in the score, but I, I actually think my own voice became the most distinct sound in the score. <laughs> and um, we started talking about bringing in some like little girl choirs doing these kind of Danny Elfman, like la la la's. Yeah. And I sang some placeholders in my upper falsetto and uh, then I just kept singing them, and I always intended to replace them. Um, and in fact, then you know, the director was like, "Dude, the, the girls' choir is awesome. Do more." And I was like, oh, "Okay, cool." I started using it all over the place. And then right toward the end, I was like talking to my engineer, and I was like, "All right, well, we got to book the session with a girls' choir. I mean, this is gonna be so expensive. I got to replace all this." And he was like, "What? That's the best part of the score. What are you doing?" <laughs> and I just couldn't fathom. I was like, "No, we're not gonna. Have, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not gonna sing all this. These are just demos." And then just to prove everyone how wrong they were, I got together some session singers. Um, they were adult women, but that had that much higher voice. Yeah. Um, and I was like, all right, we're going to do this. And we, we did a couple cues. And then like I A beat them, and it was like not even close that my really? falsetto was cooler. Weirder, yeah. not as good. And, and, uh, but giving that little tactile texture or something. It had a texture to it. Yeah. And it had a personality to it because it's, it's coming out of my brain, through my body, into your ears. Yeah. And in fact, Child's Play might be my most personal score because of that, because like none of these other musicians are getting in the way of interpreting it. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Like, right, right. So that it makes it very, um, uh, it's very distinct and sort of has a, has a unique personality. So yeah. that's cool. Um, and of course, you got to work with Mark Hamill. I got to, well, then there's another voice in it. <laughs> there's yeah. another voice in there. Got to work with Mark Hamill. That so you got bad. to do a song with him. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, how how's working with Mark? I mean, that must have been like a childhood thing. Come totally, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's weird because it's like I can't really say it was a dream come true to write a song for Mark Hamill to sing because it's like, why would you dream exactly. that? Exactly. It's like no one could put that. Universe had to weirdly I know. put that. In you. Would never even like. I guess that would be amazing. Um, no, it was fantastic. I mean, Mark is a total pro and yeah. uh, dove into it head first. Um, and when he was hired on the film, there, there was some singing, obviously, written into the script. Um, but with Mark's enthusiasm, we took it a few steps further. I mean, ultimately, not only coaching him through singing these on-camera appearances, but crafting a song that I sent to the producers kind of just as like, not as a joke, but just as like an Easter egg. Like, hey, I actually, we actually made a real song out of this. Like just a fun kind of Randy Newman Pixar type thing. And I just sent it to him. Check it out. Happy Thursday. I'm going to go back to writing horror music for you guys. And a few weeks later, I was like, hey, so I want to talk to you guys. Of, I want to talk to you about the main on ends, like the cool like end credits. I got this idea. And they're like, oh, no, we're using your song. And I was like, what song? Well, we're using the buddy song. And I was like, you're what? They go, oh, yeah, the studio loves it. The network, uh, producers love it. Uh, distributors love it. Like, it's, oh, it's a done deal. Like, it's done already. Thanks for that. And I was like, that was, that was a goof, <laughs> you know? And sure enough, it's like, so the, 
at the end of the movie, it ends with the fun little song I did with Mark, just yeah. for fun. And then it goes into my dark, aggressive, like, theme. Right, right. Uh, which, and thankfully, as it turns out, the credits were long enough that we got to use them to both. both. Wow. And the cool thing was that it means that the credits then start with the happy Mark Hamill song. Goes into my theme with me singing all this weird stuff and right. ends with this, like, creepy Mark Hamill yeah. performance. Um, it was super fun. And um, he got to sing at a Comic-Con. Right? Yeah. yeah. And he gave you a little shout-out, too. <laughs> yeah, Mark sang it when he won the Icon Award yeah. uh, at Comic-Con. And uh, that was pretty neat. I mean, I, I, um, uh, I, mean, I realized, like, I, I think for Mark it was clearly something fun yeah. for him, yeah. you know? And what's neat about it is it was an unexpected thing for both of us. Mm. When, when I was hired on Child's Play, Mark wasn't hired yet. I was hired before him. So oh, it was wow. like, which is funny because if they'd said, we want you to do this movie for free, there's no budget, you don't get any, you don't get any money at all, you get to work with Mark Hamill on a song <laughs> and he'll sing it at Comic-Con. I'd be like, I'm in. <laughs> That's my fee. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> and for Mark, it's like there was some singing, but there was no sense that like you would get to make a song. It was yeah. something that organically came out of working together. For sure. And uh, so it was a great experience for everybody. And that's, you know, that's part of the fun of collaborating with people. You get yeah. these unexpected surprises, you know? Absolutely. Mark is the nicest dude because uh, I work at Cartoon Network Studios and he used to voice on our show, regular show. He was Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when he'd come in, I remember he came in with his big Jedi beard. It was before first week. I was like, oh, my God. That's <laughs> awesome. Like that. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely got a lot of great stories. Uh, he's very... Um, forthcoming and just and 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 he's got a lot of great experience um and uh yeah actually i was realizing like technically i had i had worked on something that he was in before when i did uh orchestral arrangements for metalocalypse the doomstar requiem mm. uh and so we started talking about uh, metalocalypse for a little while um and even then i was like i was like writing orchestral arrangements on a thing that you sang on like or like sang in sort of heavy right. metal quotes yeah um, but this was obviously on a whole other level so it was cool absolutely i do want to ask you actually about working with directors because sure, you sure. that's something that's part of your job and you're working with directors that you've built relationships with you're working with brand new directors um is it hard to navigate different personalities? Do you have to, is it, are you kind of playing therapist and be like, it's going to be okay? Like, how, how do you kind of, what is your approach to working with all these different personalities that Hollywood throws at you? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> I, I think it's the most, um, I think the ability to work with different people is the most crucial part of the job. Yeah. Like, hands down. Um, being able to go into your studio and come up with cool music is a secondary concern to being able to pull out of someone what they really want and being, right. make them feel comfortable and vulnerable um, talking about something that they may not be comfortable talking about. Yeah. You know, which music is probably across the board the category most filmmakers um, know the least about. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, you know, it, I... Is it hard? For me, no. It, I, it, it's the way my personality works. That, yeah. That's probably why I have a career. Right. Because I, I feel like I sort of naturally gravitate toward um, being very uh, verbal and like I like talking with people. I'm curious. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I've sort of since learned to channel that and like figure out 
what puts someone at ease, you know? Mm. So like, for example, um, some filmmakers are, uh, are very reserved. Yeah. And it's like, you kind of find I need to adjust my approach. Yeah. And like, like you're talking talk with, about it. Talking with a cat. You yeah, know? exactly. <laughs> you're like, and it's like, you're going to say something like super important mm. and you're not going to, with your body language or your voice, you're not going to, you're not going to put a flag on it. Mm. But it's like, what I want is this. Right. And you got to be like, got to just catch it, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then there's other guys, <laughs> you know? Um, and, uh, you know, like when I, I met, um, I met Mick G. When yeah. I Room yeah, of the yeah World. He's a, he's a personality and a very stylish, oh stylish director. Super fun. Yeah. And, and I actually find like, uh, for me, guys like that are, are sort of easier for me to work with. Mm. Like guys that can't sit down yeah. and like prowl around the room and probably freak out other people. Like I'm, I'm probably one of those people too. <laughs> you could ask anybody that works here about that. Um, but it's like, so when McGee's like standing up, like I'll be like, if he, if he doesn't sit down, when he stands up, I stand up. Yeah. Then it's like, he's walking over there. I'm going to walk over. It's almost like, I got you, man. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, let me get your ideas, you know? Um, and, and, and so I sort of like, I, I, but that's, that works for him. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, right. in, a, and in a weird way, I think somebody like that needs somebody to match their energy level. Because mm. if you were just like, tell me what you want, Mr. McGee, it'd be like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like an explosion of personality. Right. Um, so it's fun, you know? And, I, I, and, and that, maybe the hardest part is like observing early on. Forming new relationships is super hard. Yeah. It's is- awesome working yeah. with someone you've worked with before. Right. I mean, when I came in to do Happy Death Day 2, um, which was maybe the, not technically, but among the first times I've done a feature film right. with someone that I'd done a feature film with before, it was like... And a sequel oh, to something. See, exactly. Yeah. And a sequel. So it was just like, oh, this is great, man. Yeah. This is picking up where we left off. Right. Whereas in TV, you get really used to that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is the great thing about TV. Um, and even when I started Outlander, it was like, oh, this is just like Battlestar Season 5. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like... Ron and I were just on the same page from the get-go. Um, whereas new relationships are always tricky. Yeah. But I mean, that that applies in life. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I you mean, go yeah. into a new relationship and it's like, I don't want to look like a weirdo. Exactly. But I don't want to like look like I have no spine. I want I want you to like me, but I don't want you to I want you to think I'm trying to look like I don't right. like me. And, do you know what I mean? Like all no, that yeah, shit yeah, that yeah. comes to your mind on a blind date. Would, I know. Would, like, oh God. It, yeah. You're, you're thinking about what they're perceiving you as. as a, and that gets in your head for sure. a little bit. Yeah. And that's why ultimately the ability look man honesty is always the best policy yeah. right so like to a degree if you honestly believe that i got i got this i'm going to get you to the finish line right i'm going to be on time i'm going to be on budget and like you know that and i know that so yeah. like we can just kind of get into the creative stuff cuz people people pick up on fear yeah do you know what i mean yeah and and i don't mean filmmakers i just mean everybody and so once that sort of um, that's that initial step that mm. every film composer has to kind of get over. Mm. And, and mine probably was Battlestar Galactica. When I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, and I, I think I already talked about like that first mix playback when yeah. they heard my first score and they were like silently assessing me. And I was like, <laughs> pretty good score. And they're like, come in tomorrow. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's like, if they felt that I was like, I need this man. Yeah. Like, oh my God, I need, like, they would have been like, thanks, dude. Yeah. We'll get somebody else. Do, do right. you know what I mean? And that's, no. that's what I think the difference is that I, I probably exuded enough, like, 
oh, I, confidence. I'm here for you. I think confidence is also, yeah. and I talk about composer with confidence, like, because it's a, it's a very vulnerable work you do because music is vulnerable, art is vulnerable, anything yeah. that you're putting yourself out there. Totally. But confidence, and they always say confidence wins, but I mean, and clearly you were able to find that confidence early on, I think, right? And kind of helped you be like, And I'll tell you I'm where it gets doing... put to the test. Yeah. It, confidence without experience. Or, yeah. 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 I mean, were you presenting cockiness as a bad thing? Oh, no. Because I was like, <laughs> I would... I have heard that word to describe me in the past, and with sort of like, he makes it work. <laughs> um, and admittedly, it's like, yeah, I'm a little cocky, I know. But at the same time, when the chips are down, yeah. when it's like, we don't like that, mm. you know, this isn't working for me. The ability to go like, not only to not present like, what's your problem, but to be like, oh, that's great, tell me more. You know, like, I genuinely want to know. Yeah. That's a cool idea. Let's try it this way. And not to be defensive, not to be like, well, the re you asked me to do that, which is most of the time the case. Like uh, a week ago, we met here and you said this. Yeah. You know, and some people can't stop themselves. Yeah, yeah. Even in a not aggressive way, it's like even to say like, oh, okay, well, I mean, you did say you wanted it romantic there, but I'll try it the other way. Right. You've already lost. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So there yeah. is an art form to being confident even when you're being told you messed it up. Mm. And you've been told, like, I hate this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've even had filmmakers just the other day, like, I, I, I kind of hate this. And it's like, yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. You know, tell me why. You know, I'd be like, I hate it too. <laughs> you know, like, whatever, man. Like, instead, well, of, instead of going with the tail behind the legs, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'll fix it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And that's right. another thing. Oh, like, that embracing that, like, you hating it yeah. is part of us figuring this out. Right, that's part of the Do you know what work, I mean? Like, yeah. like, it's great if out of the gate, you love it, that's mm -hmm. awesome, but that's not even the way this is supposed to go down. Right. This is like my first splash of canvas uh, paint on canvas. Mm -hmm. It's just a thing to talk about. And if you genuinely feel that way, people can kind of go like, I hate this. Let's just talk. And, th and then what's funny, as, as what happened <laughs> in this, the other day, I hate this. Cool, well, tell me about that. And we talk about it. At the end of the day, it's like, there was like a pad that was too loud. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like ultimately, it's like, but then the next, like two seconds later, oh, but I love that. Yeah. Even though, like, the headline was, I hate the entire scene. And when, right. Uh, and then when it comes down to it, it's like, oh, it's, a, it's an adjustment. Yeah. That's, that's, what, that's, that's your way of speaking. Yeah, but that's also, that's when you get in that collaborative relationship. That's, that's what filmmaking is. And that's, like, kind For of. For sure. Yeah, and again, like, I, I try to um, have empathy for filmmakers. I mean, yeah. I, I have a tremendous amount. I, I am like that filmmaker when I'm collaborating with people that'll, that'll be, um, doing music editorial for me or yeah. orchestration or additional music where it's just like I'll be pacing and I'm like in such a hurry and it's like I hate this like yeah. I, need to, blah, blah, I need to do this that's the way I, 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 it's not personal yeah it's just I'm in a hurry yeah and it also means like it's just not what I want right do you know what I mean yeah. so that like you know in a weird way that that helps me when a filmmaker is just sort of like I'm, I'm doing a million things yeah and this cue isn't what I want so it's not about the composer's ego when they don't like it right it's just about like well, tell me what you need. Let's get closer. Absolutely. Know? So before we kind of focus on your amazing year of 2019, I do want to talk about video games a little bit because your work in video games has been phenomenal. I, I love Dark Void. I loved how oh, that you wow. did, Thanks, man. did Defiance with a, the series and the game. Yeah, that was fun. And then you did SOCOM, which was awesome. And um, lately, uh, uh, recently, God of War, yeah. which I think was not just one of the best game scores, but best scores of, of the year wow, last year. And... Um, I remember seeing some video you did for Sony that you were talking about finding that theme for Kratos and and I guess I get 
in your opinion, what makes a good video game score? How do you how does it differ from what you do with kind of like linear TV and film stuff like that? Well, it doesn't. Doesn't at all. I mean, that's ultimately <laughs> the answer, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I'm not the guy to hire for like a sports game, right? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the entirety of what I think makes God of War unique was the amount of time that we collectively, Sony and uh, Santa Monica Studio and myself, spent crafting the themes mm. for the story, emphasizing story. And uh, from there, it's like once you get into like, well, we're getting into combat cues and, yeah. and cinematics, it's like, yeah, but that's the easy part. Like right. that, that's skill. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? The fact that we all, all of us, understood what the goal was. Mm -hmm. And in a game, it's harder than it is in a film. Because in a film, it's like, okay, like, oh, this character walks into the scene. I'm going to quote their theme. Yeah. And as long as the editors or music editors or director don't, like, get wild with moving stuff around, they don't ever need to understand what mm. you did. It's just there. Yeah. Games are different. Like, huge portions of the interactive music I'm creating stuff and I hand it over to the team that can be, I mean, dozens of people. Right. And it's like, the goal was like, no, you're going to hear character themes in the combat cues. And I'm talking with the director about like, even okay, in this portion of the game, what's the relationship between Kratos and Atreus? Yeah. We want that to feel a certain way. That can be destroyed if the if the audio team is like, oh, we need another combat cue. Let's let's yeah, put it in there. It's like yeah. ah, but they you have to know you have to know what all these little things are. We all have to be on the same page, and that's where Sony um, really excels. I mean, everybody just dove in. You know what I mean? And just keep and, that and constant in, communication between everybody. Totally, right? and that understanding of yeah. uh, and I think that enthusiasm. I mean, everybody was super passionate about it, and and the themes. We spent a long time. I mean, it was the months and months, if not arguably a year. Wow. On just thematic yeah. development, you know? That's amazing. Yeah, it was cool. I mean, it turned out phenomenally. I mean, just the, the way they structured it as a continuous shot with no cuts and... Amazing, yeah, right? That's... I mean, just as a game, because I, I, I play games. Yeah, I'm a gamer and, too, yeah. And it's like, that to me, oh, I don't want to go on on a limb, but I mean, it's like the way I felt about Battlestar Galactica, where it's like, dude, I don't care what you say, this... Is going to be in, in in decades from now. Yeah. When they're writing like history books about the medium, there's going to be a paragraph about like a Battlestar. Yeah. And I think God of War. I mean, I felt that from the beginning. Like, and I felt it when I played the first game after I played God of War, and I got to, yeah. as a gamer got to experience it after it had come out. And then I played another game, and I was like, "Oh, this is fun." Loading screen. What? <laughs> oh. Oh, right. That's a thing. Yeah. Dude, I mean, I felt like literally after Talkies came out. And then the next movie that was like still a silent, and the cards came up, the audience was like, no, people talk now. Yeah, right. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, you don't shatter the illusion now. Yeah. Like, that's stupid. Absolutely. But it's, you know what I mean? God of War was so far ahead of its, of its competitors, just on a technical level. Mm. Forgetting even that the game is good and the story is good and the combat is satisfying. Just that thing alone, like the elimination yeah. of loading screens. And obviously it's not the first ever. Right. But it's the first that I think to pull off something that immersive that lasts that long. It just seemed like a, a natural evolution of what that series was as like kind of a kind of combo bashing kind yeah. of thing and kind of incorporating mixes of open world, but it's still kind of a linear thing. It's third person. I mean, it felt like a natural. And it, to me, the thing that made it so smart, it was like it gave, the, it gave you the best of both worlds where yeah. it like it feels open world. Right. But like, but it's very... My yeah. feeling about open world games, like, they've become so tedious. 
where the map opens up and I'm like, cool. Then it's like, oh my God, there's just so much stuff. There's just, it's like, there's dots everywhere. Yeah. It's like, I'll go to this one. And it's like, collect all these feathers. And it's like, fuck you. <laughs> like, this is stupid. Like, I don't want to, no. And then it's like, let me find something else. And it's like, help me get out of the river. And it's like, that's dumb. Like, it's filler. Yeah. And obviously, like, there's like killing the birds or whatever in God of War. But it's like, it's kind of open world. Yeah. But they didn't feel the need. And I feel like it's a compulsion with developers now to be like, if people don't have five million things to do right. to occupy their time, they're not getting their money's worth. And I don't think gamers feel that way. No. no. You know what I mean? It's it like you're much. turning the open world experience yeah. into like casual mobile gaming. It's true. Like, the break last the blocks, is, yeah. and like, it's like, oh my god, stop. The last Assassin's Creed, I loved Origins, but the, and I, didn't even, I didn't even finish, I finished the game and didn't even finish certain areas, and then the new one came out, and it was like twice as big, and I was like, yeah, this is overwhelming. Yeah, it's literally it's, overwhelming. <laughs> it's like, this will be 300 hours of my life. You I know, know? <laughs> I know, and that, and also as I, as I, as I get older, and I have a family now, and sort yeah. of like, sort of like, dude, you Time, give me a good yeah. 30, 40 hours, like 50 if I love you, that's great. That, yeah. and, 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 you know, Nothing against the hundred-hour multi-player oh, no. player Red experience, Dead, but Grand Theft Auto, I'm totally, a love but, yeah. but I'm finding you know those are the kind of games I like playing, yeah. and then you know to have the opportunity to work on a game that objectively and arguably sort of crystallizes everything that's great about that type of game making, mm. and for me to get to work on it was like crazy. Cool. Yeah, you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, so kind of bring us to 2019, which is your big year. We talked about Child's Play. Um, another amazing talking about period pieces. You're, you're talking about Outlander and yeah, and um, Da Vinci's Demons. Uh, but Professor and the Madman, thanks, dude. Was yeah, a fantastic score. Thank you. Yeah, and you got to score uh, with these two, I mean, titans of acting. I mean, Mel Gibson and yeah. Sean Penn. And with a film like that, we kind of you already talked about kind of finding the sound of a period piece. But when you have performance, how do you deal with performance? You don't as a score. You don't want to trip over somebody's performance, especially if you have these actors who are really kind of just chewing up the material and really yeah, going for, for sure. it. So how do you kind of make sure you're, you're still doing your job but not messing up theirs? I you guess. know, it's interesting because I, I know what the answer is, mm -hmm. and, it, and it's not necessarily what I did on Professor and the Madman. I mean, the yeah. answer is to, like, really hold back. Uh -huh. And, like, an like, a fully ambient score would have been great for that movie. Like, right. honestly, like... Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross would have kicked ass on Professor and the Madman. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have done what I did. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Right. And it would have, the drama part I think would have worked equally well. Mm -hmm. But I, I approached it more from a Elmer Bernstein with Martin Scorsese mm. approach. I was thinking Age of Innocence. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was thinking like really taking us into the period. Um, I had some sort of like ambient textures, but really it's like, I thought that way, but, but thinking about acoustic instruments, you know, so right. like using um, string lines, using a solo cello, and also like using propulsion so that like ultimately the challenge of that movie was that these guys are, it's almost like a play. I mean, they, yeah. they don't go anywhere. Do you know what I mean? But but in a way, the, the ramifications are so big and global yeah. Yeah. that it's like I wanted something that, that propels forward. So I, um, I wrote very active music, very melodic, beautiful orchestral music. And, um, and uh, you know, I, it's, it's the kind of music I want to hear in a movie like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Even yeah. though, and, and, I, and, and, and um, I think it works. I mean, obviously I think it works because that's how I chose to do it. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? But I mean, like, 
it definitely flirts with like overpowering the movie. I know that. I know that because it's like you've got these these incredible performances and Sean Penn especially is like so intense. And if you look at it carefully, like the theme for Sean Penn is like a solo fiddle that's like, just like Sandy Cameron going crazy, literally like acting like she's going crazy. So his theme is like very out of the way. Like I'm just adding these little colors. Whereas with Mel Gibson's character, he's a little more stately and reserved. It's Mm. like, it's melodic melody. It's, It's sort of more like, Elmer Bernstein approach, you know. Mm. So, I don't know. I hope people find it. I mean, it, to I me, it's I'm very, very, film, yeah, but I'm it's very really proud great. of it. I yeah. mean, I, I um, it's the kind of score that I have always wanted to do, and yeah. they don't make movies like that very often. So I feel very lucky I got to do that. No, it's absolutely. I think it turned out really well. So. Awesome, thank you. Um, and jumping to a completely different genre, Godzilla. I mean, that's... completely different, or just kind of <laughs> different, a little different. You know, just recast Mel with Godzilla. Yeah. But um, you got to score an awesome monster movie. Yeah. Um, and it's it kicked ass, man. It was Thanks, it dude. was so much fun, and it was just like yeah, I mean, but it wasn't like dumb fun. It was like it was really well put together, and you know, it it held you. So awesome. Um, talk about you got to use uh, the original theme, and you kind of brought that in, and talk about scoring a monster movie because we've seen Godzilla on screen so many times, whether yeah. it's Emmerich's wrote '98 version or um, even just Gareth Edwards' one in 2014. So. Well, and and yeah, we were definitely in the shadow of well, 30 plus other movies. Yeah, um, and in many ways, you know, Michael Doherty, uh, the director, um, whose creative leadership was was so influential on mm. on the music. Um, uh, Wanted to make a Godzilla movie that was sort of like the ultimate tribute to the collective franchise. The you history, know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and uh, so it was sort of like sort of like a death match of themes. You know, we had four major monsters: military group, monarch, some human characters, like uh, ancient cultures. All, there, there were all these themes I wanted to do. Yeah. And with each one, it's like, okay, just put everything on the table. What? You know, Godzilla. Like, what are the themes we could use? I mean, I could write something new. We've got the Ifakube March. We've got the, like, Ifakube, like, fanfare that he developed a couple of years after the first film. We've got the Displa theme, the David Arnold theme. Like, why, like yeah. let the best theme win, you know? <laughs> and in each case, you know, we, I tried to be as just objective as possible and, yeah. and uh, got feedback from Michael. And we, you know, we landed where, you know, most of the themes are original. Um, Godzilla and Mothra are, are the classic ones, you know, which I think um, says a lot about what Michael's vision of his version of Godzilla is. It's very respectful. Mm. Um, and in many ways, it's astonishing to me still that this is the third big budget American Godzilla film, the first to use Theory. the iconic yeah. Ifakube March. Absolutely. The first to use the Blue Oyster Cult song. <laughs> from 1977 <laughs> you know the first film ever not even american film yeah um, so that uh that was cool you know it yeah. was, it the, was a, the it was closest fun. we got to that was when michael used it in uh, cloverfield when he kind of hinted at it you know kind of totally. watched it but totally. to hear it yeah back with with godzilla the way you brought it in was fantastic yeah it was exciting yeah you know? <laughs> and again for those choices were were somewhat obvious you know yeah. i mean i uh I think the first scene I scored to do thematic experiments was uh, Godzilla rising out of the ocean, mm. right? And uh, I played it for Michael. Even though I had, I did a draft with my own theme 
And I even sketched around, like, I'll throw the display theme in here. Like, let's just see what works. Um, and I was like, I'm going to show Michael the Ifakube, my version of the Ifakube version mm -hmm. here. And uh, I showed it to him, and I looked at him when it was over, and he's got like tears pouring out his face. That's how you know you won. <laughs> I think that settles that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not even going to show you the other version. Yeah, just, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was really cool. That's awesome. Um, we talked about briefly working with McGee, but you got to do Rim of the World, yeah, um, yeah. which is kind of a throwback to the kind of the old school Spielbergian Amblin stuff. Totally. Um, yeah, totally. that must have been just pure, just fun. Oh my god, yeah. I had the time of my life on that movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, and in many ways, it was uh, it was just a great experience being on on the same same wavelength. The, creative team yeah you know because it was a it was a middle budget movie i mean modest maybe even for what its ambitions were yeah for sure and uh you know they 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 approached me and it was like wow we want to do something you know like this and i was like you want this move it here in fact how about this you know and it was like this is and then they were like we don't know and then i was like let me just let me just pitch you something. So yeah. I, I scored the second reel, which is when the alien invasion attacks. And it's like, I held nothing back. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And then they were like, yeah, okay, this is what the movie needs. You yeah. know? And they were great. Uh, McGee's production company um, and uh, Netflix, everybody, you know, we ended up, um, McGee and I flew to uh, Vienna, recorded with the, the Vienna Symphony Orchestra and the Synchron stage there. And uh, it was an amazing experience. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of pulling back out a little bit as we kind of wrap things up, we talked about all these different projects and all these different things. Um, I would like to ask composers, I know it's going to be different for every project, but where does the first note come from? Like where do you gravitate towards when you get hired on a project? Do you like to just sit with a director? Do you like to, if you are early on enough, read the script? Do you just like to watch the first cut of the film? What's kind of your process? That's an interesting question because yeah. what you're describing is the one part of the creative process that's indescribable. Hmm. That to me is what makes each composer unique. Right. I mean, there's so many people that a filmmaker can hire that have an equal skill. I mean, anybody that's working has skill. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's that other thing. The like, why does that composer think that weird thing yeah. that then becomes that idea? Right. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. it's like that, that's just like personality. It's, it's, your life experience, yeah. and and that can come from anywhere. I mean, it also depends on on what you, you you get out, what you put in. So it's like, what comes first? Do you know the director? Is it? Do you read this? Do they give you the script? Do they send you the? You know, it's in, and it's whatever kind of starts those synapses firing um, that that make you go like, I think I want to use toy pianos in this movie. Like I, I don't, you know what I mean? Like I don't know where that comes from. Yeah, and. Uh, and uh, yeah, so so, so I, I I don't really I, I want to give you a satisfying answer, but that no, really that, is that, sort of like the yeah, magic of for it, for sure, uh, because that can kind of come from anywhere. And and once that happens, the skill kicks in, and then mm. it's like, okay, cool, you you uh, you you go from there, and you 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 do the part of the job that yeah. is the job. But it's that indescribable, like, why use a blaster beam in Ten Cloverfield Lane? Like, I don't know, <laughs> other than like I like the score to Star Trek The Motion Picture, and I've always wanted to use a blaster beam like since I was a kid. I just kind of wanted to see it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And this yeah. is like an excuse to call up the guy that made it and played it for Jerry Goldsmith and go, can I come over? Like, So that's why, you know? I, I don't know. Absolutely. Um, 
And now if you could pick any other job on a film, front of the camera, behind the camera, what would you want to just take a crack at and just from like start to finish the production? Jeez, like I've, a, never, I've literally never thought about that. Like if you could just, for just like a fantasy, just to like, <laughs> uh, to give you a little, uh, John Powell said stuntman, which was a good answer. That's a fun one. <laughs> I don't um, know. <laughs> that's a really fun one, actually. That's a good answer. Uh, I'm trying to think of the uh, the person that has the most power to throw out a cue. Uh, you know, like executive producer. Um, no, I don't know. Let me think of something weird. Um, I would like to be the, um, like, uh, it's, it's, it's Take like, your time. It's okay. I know, just give me a second. I want to say, like, like the animal wrangler or something weird. Um, or or um, I would want to be like the person whose job it is to do the most like ridiculous thing that like the the star has written into their contract <laughs> do you know what i mean yeah, that yeah. like like they need to have salted peanut four salted peanuts in their trailer yeah. and they're like it's their thing and if they don't have it, like they won't come out. You be, know what I mean? Yeah, be the one separating the blue M and M's. Just exactly, because, yeah. and so that, so that everyone's like everyone's doing their job, but they're like, dude, if you mess that up, this is over. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I just be like, I got you, man. Gotcha. Got you, blue. The blue M and M's are in there, are in their place. You know, right. which in many ways is is kind of what scoring is. It's just a lot of like some of this is so like it's yeah. like minutia, but it's like right. if I mess this up, the whole thing will fall apart. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. But. Um, yeah, that's fun, dude. That's a fun that's question. A good question. And to, to wrap things up, we're going to end on a grand little existential uh, question. You, you know, you're so, you've built a career. I mean, you, your husband, your father. Um, what's, I guess, what's the key to happiness in your life? You've, you've, on your time on earth, what have you found to be to cli- to, the key to life, love, and happiness? Holy shit, you're not Ooh. messing around. No, we're going big. You, oh, my God. Um, we're talking I, about meaning of life stuff. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I truly do not know. Um, and I have dedicated my life to creative pursuits, mm. hoping that that will um, provide that sort of sense of um, completion that you hope to have yeah. on, on your deathbed. You know what I mean? Right. But like, I'll leave you with this. The, the, the most inspiring and terrifying thing that I've ever heard a composer say or heard of a composer saying, right. was Maurice Ravel on his deathbed. And uh, he had a tragic end that I really hope not to have. But he, um, he had a brain aneurysm or something. Mm-hmm. And in his final years, he was limited in his ability to concentrate. So he could imagine music and he couldn't write it down. Oh, wow. It was like a curse. Yeah. And his final words on his deathbed were, I still have so much music left to write. Oh, wow. I'm getting choked up thinking about it. Yeah. It's like that That's... is like a horror movie for me. And yet, and yet, would I want to say the opposite of that on my deathbed? Would I want to be like, yeah, I've, I've man, I did it. Yeah, I did it all. I don't think so. I think everyone would have a lot more stuff to write or to do. So in many yeah. ways, it's like I want to go like uh, I want to go like Bernard Herrmann. I want to like be working on a thing like he was working on Taxi Driver that would. Right end up being one of the defining things of my life. Yeah. I want to put the baton down on Christmas Eve and go, the score is now recorded. I want to go home and die in my sleep. Go to sleep. Yeah. yeah. That's that, you know, working until the very end, you know, and the guys that I admire all did that. So I don't know. As, a, as a, the, the short answer might be for an artist, there, there, 
that level of happiness is not yeah. possible wow. because it is the search for happiness that drives us to create our art. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, I mean, we don't want to be miserable, but it's like right. an artist, it's like, dude, everything's great and it's awesome. I got nothing to say. Yeah. I don't know any artist that's like no, that. Because you know you, I mean? if pain leads to beautiful things too. Totally. You experience the pain to write the stuff to make, make it seem worthwhile, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in many ways, it's almost like, I would almost be afraid to be that happy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just going to keep writing music and doing fun stuff. All right. Headline is Bear is Miserable. Okay. Nice. There you go. There you go. Well, Bear, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, man. Oh, it was so much fun to talk with you and discuss and pick your brain. Uh, yeah, appreciate cool. it. Awesome. Cheers. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>